So I like to crash the jingles. Uh, Tuesday nights, we like to look as more in depth at what uh, a particular sector, particular industry, something that sort of yeah, takes our fancy. And the science of is brought to you by the global leader in water and energy solutions, Grindfoss. Be, think, innovate. And tonight it's about content. It's about online content in particular and how you will pay for it in the future or how you prepared to pay for it or whether you prepared to pay for it here is the here is the point 10 years ago you would have happily taken out a newspaper subscription or a magazine subscription you today if you're in an airport or in a cna or in an exclusive books and a magazine cover um grabs your eye you'll pick up the magazine you'll take it and you'll go to the coffee shop and you'll sit and you'll flick through the magazine and you'll might even spend 200 rand on one of those imported magazines you might very well do that but somebody then puts up a paywall on your favorite website and you go completely mad. And you go, no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. The internet is free. I pay for data. Why should I pay you to provide me with this content? Um, Brian says, I will pay for content, but I don't uh, want online banking. Can online publishers create those prepaid vouchers that iTunes and app stores use? That's an interesting thought, Brian. Thank you. Um, and somebody else was going, John and Rondebosch, I'd rather pay to read online content than have it put up with advertising. I do pay for Wikipedia. I donate 300 rand annually. It's not a lot. But that's what they suggested, said John and Rondebosch. You're not paying, John. You may give them, you're giving them some petty cash, which is nice of you, by the way, because I don't think, I think most people don't bother. Um, when it comes to that sort of content. So thanks for your contribution so far this evening. 31702-31567 or directly uh, to me on Twitter on at Bruce Business. By all means, keep us, uh, uh, do give us a good sense of what is going on in your mind when it comes to paying for online content. Danny Maverick's been doing something interesting recently and that is that they've been asking, not telling, not demanding, they've been asking their readers to make a contribution. Um, and Danny Maverick has been a pivotal rescuer of South Africa Africa's democracy. Um, the, it's, it's where the Gupta emails, the 200,000 emails first ended up and it was where they were first published and then there were collaborations between different media organizations dealing with this deluge of content and it became very clear in April last year that a free and independent media was absolutely pivotal to democracy, to your future prosperity and whether or not you prepare to pay for it is the question. Let's talk to Stili Charalambos who is the publisher at Daily Maverick. Daily Maverick's first iteration was a magazine and the way in which um, the founder Branko Brikic got to pay for it initially was made at Kalula.com's um, in-flight magazine. It was pretty and it was expensive. Expensive. And that relationship didn't go on forever. Um, and then Maverick disappeared. And then Daily Maverick was birthed in the form of a website. And it's been free, what, for a decade now? Yeah, 18 and a half years. Um, it's been free. We, uh, the decision to go online meant uh, we had to move away from being a monthly magazine into a daily publication, uh, hence Daily Maverick. And, I mean, the advertising model was one of great – the idea was to try and replicate the glossy magazine feel. So if one picks up a copy of an international Vogue, the best part of the magazine is the first 10 or 20 pages, which is all just beautiful Annie Leibovitz-style <laughs> photography, uh, and it's all adverts. And it, But they are artistically very, very pleasing. And the idea with, I think, Daily Maverick was to try and create that look and feel of the great glossies. Yeah, absolutely. There was a big part of the plan was to bring brand advertising opportunities online. There were very very few publishers who were doing that. Uh, most were plastering 10, 20 ads on a page, really abusing the experience of readers once they were there. Uh, and we tried to take a different approach, which was larger, fewer ads, which may- had a bigger impact and, and really played on the brand part of advertising online. How's that worked? Uh, 
It hasn't to some extent. Uh, we didn't really get the uptake that uh, we were expecting from advertisers. Digital as a channel uh, in South Africa was way behind the curve, is way behind the curve uh, compared to international counterparts. And there is this thinking that, um, you know, digital just isn't a place for, for brand advertising. It's a place for clicks and leads and uh, sort of all that performance type stuff. Uh, and, you know, we haven't quite got around to that space yet where people are willing to spend in a brand capacity. Has anybody in the world cracked the brand advertising online? Um, in a news publisher space, I'm not quite sure. A lot of people have tried, but I think the, the, the MO now for most news publishers is to try and figure out and do things that Google and Facebook can't do. Because like once facts and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and come, uh, work with, uh, work with advertisers and sponsors, uh, in a way that they can't and bring more to the party than, you know, what we term display advertising, which, you know, they really just dominate, you know, 70 to 90% of every rand spent uh, in digital goes via Facebook and Google, yeah. uh, and very little of that pops up at the end uh, at the end of the line with publishers. Don't say pops up, oh. uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I, which is I, exactly part of the problem. Yeah, right? I mean the pop up ad. There have been a couple of pop ups sort of popping up again recently, but mm-hmm. pop ups were very popular ten, fifteen years ago, and then they went away. They seem yeah. to have made a sort of a mini comeback. Yeah, and there, there is a big move by the industry to try and do away with uh, uh, those kinds of ads that really violate the attention of the reader while they're there. A lot of moves by the industry to try and clean up its act, uh, which is probably a long time coming. Um, and a lot of people have abused that. And, you know, this is the, you know, readers are fighting back with ad blockers. Um, they're fighting back with not visiting sites, particular sites. Uh, and the industry is also coming down with uh, regulations about uh, tracking people, cookies, and uh, following people around the Internet once they visited a site. Explain this concept of the cookie to the uninitiated, please. This idea that um, when <clears throat> you will be online and you will be I don't know, searching for a weekend away. And so you'll type in Michalisburg. And for the next six months... Every time you go onto a website, Michalisburg accommodation um, options are thrown at you, even though you didn't bother to go, or you did go, or you went somewhere else. Yeah, or made the purchase uh, three three months ago. And that's the thing is that once you visit a particular site or or conduct do a search online, uh, a cookie gets dropped down onto your machine uh, that stores information about you and then follows you around. And and advertisers are able to to tap into the information stored in that cookie, uh, either through paid services uh, or through um, you know third parties that collect that data and then sell that on to them. But it's the reason why you'll see those those ads follow you follow you around uh, on on Google, on Facebook, and other sites which uh, run the Google uh, or Facebook Pixel, mm-hmm. for example, as an extension. Explain the principle of an ad blocker. An ad blocker. So let's say readers are uh, tired of seeing these pop-ups and 20 ads being thrown at them every time they visit a page. Um, readers can install a number of different uh, ad blockers. And what that does is it detects whether ads are being served on that page and then blocks them before they're actually rendered on, on the site. So how do we as consumers of online content, particularly news, and we want good, reliable, independent, long-term news, um, how do we expect that to continue if we are preventing those services from getting money from the process of serving news? 
Well, it's, I mean, the, the, the prevalence of ad blocking is growing at, at quite an alarming rate. Uh, in Europe, for example, there's some markets where it's broken through the 50% of readers. Uh, I think Greece and Germany are quite big on ad blocking. Uh, South Africa, I think we're probably around 15% is the, is the number. 15. That's pretty high. Yeah, and growing. Um, so what that does is it prevents uh, publishers uh, from generating revenue through ads. Um, and it is going to force publishers to look elsewhere for their revenue. Uh, but even with that, even if ads were showing at 100%, uh, there are very few, if any, digital-only publications who can generate enough revenue just from advertising. How much might you expect to make out? And this is an awful question, but I mean, in a page of Vogue advertising, let's say, will cost you a million rand. I don't mm-hmm. know what a page of Vogue mm-hmm. advertising would cost you. I mean, in the digital world, that is like a rand, probably. I don't know what the, what the, what yeah, what the yeah. proportions are, but you perceived in the digital world to be worth less. The reader is perceived to be worth less than the reader of the magazine. And this is 15 years into the digital experience. The digital reader is no, still does not have the value of the physical hard copy reader. Mm. The Americans talk about the... Uh, um uh, the, de- the devaluing or the move from digital advertising dollars, uh, sorry, from advertising dollars to cents, you know, that, uh, you know, you'd be able to get dollars uh, um, in advertising in print, uh, but that converts into cents in the dollar uh, in, in the digital space. So it is significantly less uh, with larger audiences. Um, you generate your ability to generate is way less than print. Uh, the reasons for that being is oversupply. Uh, you know the the amount of web pages that are that are available to host advertising uh, slots uh, is just it's infinite with uh, where where Google's uh, display network can reach into and the number of um, impressions that are created by Facebook users uh, it's just infinite and so the oversupply has pushed the price right down and uh, and news publishers generate a very small proportion of the of the web pages that are created is it about the ability of the digital media owner to deliver advertising in a way that is vogue gorgeous um, or is it the attention span of the online reader that's the problem what is the problem yeah the, i think part a big part of the problem is that uh, digital advertising kind of assumes that every page is created equally uh, and it's and it's not um, it assumes that a page that took five minutes uh, and, you know, uh, was a bit of, uh, wire copy content, which is, uh, you know, cheap and easily accessible or something that was written up in, in 20 minutes, uh, versus, you know, it took a day or two or three days to produce, uh, apparently has the same value in the eyes mm. of the, uh, of the advertising market. Uh, whereas in print, uh, a Vogue could demand a much higher rate for a, uh, um, a slot there as opposed to let's say a people magazine or something uh, have, you know, di- have digital publishers not just not spent enough money on developing their own brands um, is that the problem? No, it, it's really a case of we're now there was limited supply in print. Mm-hmm. So, for example, your if you were the Business Day, your um, your uh, competitors were the other newspapers on the stand beside you. So, two or three other titles. Um, as a news publisher online, your your competitors are uh, the New York Times, the Guardian, Facebook. Uh, any site that's carrying Google advertising. So it literally is the internet. Do you carry Google advertising? On we do, and in a limited capacity, we do. Um, and then, do you do that out of necessity or simply what is the, the thinking behind it? Because clearly you don't like it and you'd rather not yeah. do it um, because it's a bit like selling your soul to the devil. 
um, but you've got to make some revenue somehow. Mm, it is a little bit, but there's also been the promise of um, of migrating to a more sort of automated and uh, um, electronic way of conducting and concluding uh, advertising business. And that's why we're still engaged in that game because the promise is that uh, we'd be able to speed up the process of, of you know, sending emails and orders um, and, and manually booking. And that's part of why we're still engaged with it. Uh, but I do foresee a time where we'll, we'll probably try and wean ourselves off that. And how is he going to do that? Stiri, sti, stiri, Stilly Charalambos. You've got to say it slowly. Stilly Charalambos is the publisher at Daily Maverick. He's in the studio with me this evening. We're talking about how you should be paying for content that is delivered to you, to your mobile device, to your computer, however you get your content. And what is the business model of the future? Stilly has been on a road trip. He went to see some of the world's most effective online publishers and has learned some great lessons. I want to hear those lessons in just a minute or two. It's the science of online content and what you are and are not prepared to pay for. Tell me about your road trip that you went on to go and see how other digital publishers around the world are doing it. Yeah, it was a, a trip to the US uh, last year in, in October. I uh, got to visit some incredible uh, publishers like the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, USA Today, Quartz, uh, and a bunch of other really interesting and uh, innovative companies who are at the forefront of uh, of journalism uh, and also at the forefront of um, generating reader revenue uh, in the revival of news publishers uh, in America. So it was an incredible experience for me to go. There are very few things more frustrating than if you're not a subscriber to a particular publication and then you may follow them on Twitter and then they give you a very compelling clickbaity headline and you go, oh, I must read that, click. You must subscribe as well. You know, and if it's really that important, somebody's going to like, you know, sort of repurpose the content very, very quickly. And I'll see it in an hour's time. I really don't have to have it that soon. Uh, It's not going to change my world necessarily um, that immediately. So the idea of putting up paywalls is something that has become very popular in some places. Mm -hmm. The Financial Times has done well out of it. I think the New York Times has done well out of it. I'm not sure if Business Day and the Sunday Times in South Africa are in the same league, but they've stuck with the paywalls. What is your view on paywalls? Yeah, so uh, an entity like the New York Times is probably the gold standard in in making it work with with what's called a metered paywall. So they have some free, and once you hit your allocation, your meter runs out, and then you need to subscribe. And it's been an incredible conversion tool for them to be able to get subscribers to to come on board. And they play around with that. So uh, they might drop the price, but they'll drop the number of free articles that you have. And they play around and they test these they these amazing uh, um, sort of teams that are just dedicated to testing and figuring out uh, how to get subscribers and then also how to keep them because once you've got them and spent all that money to get them, you want to keep them on board. And they, they have now close on 3 million people who pay them for a digital product in some shape or form, whether that's to the main product or to a crossword or cooking product uh, as well. So they're pretty much the gold standard uh, in that space. And, uh, you know, collecting subscription revenue digitally uh, has been the foundation of the turnaround for the New York Times once they embrace that mm. uh, and has been driving their turnaround for them um, so three million is is huge it's a huge number there are three million people three paying million people worldwide m- yeah. paying money to read content on the New York Times website yeah yeah, and that's in, pretty impressive. It's it's huge, and also because in 2012, uh, reader revenue overtook advertising uh, for them, 
and has been uh, it's been the foundation of of their turnaround. Uh, same for the Washington Post. Jeff Bezos got involved there, pumped some money in, got the guys really thinking about tech, thinking about selling an e-commerce product. The, you, a subscription is an e-commerce product. Yeah. So how do you think about that in terms of the funnel and getting people in? Uh, and they now have a million a million subscribers. Uh, and then there's the free model, which is the Guardian, or oh, sorry, free, but the voluntary model, which is the Guardian's approach. Now, this is interesting because I used to go to the times.co.uk every single day. I loved it. And then they put up a paywall. So now I go to the Guardian. Um, I'm yet to succumb to their repeated requests for, for, for payment. Mm. I am guilty. I'm one of those people. It's, it's, I'm used to free content on the internet. Yeah, it, changed it, my mind. It's the it's the uh, um, the conundrum that uh, news publishers have to deal with. Uh, you know, um, uh, an outfit like the Financial Times, for example, could put up a hard paywall from day one and make a success of it because uh, companies are essentially paying for their subscriptions. Yeah. So and they produce very niche content that you may not find somewhere else. But with the Times, you might be able to go to the Guardian and get a similar article yeah. of similar quality and 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 get it there. Slightly different political perspective, but that's never hurt anybody. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the the language barriers, uh, um, publishers. So the Scandinavians, uh, Shipset, for example, uh, since two thousand three, have been charging the men in the street um, for access to the to the various sites, and they've done really well out of that. But they have the the language barrier. No, you know, the New York Times isn't going to be launching a you know Svenska edition no. any time soon so um yeah that is the the conundrum do you put a hard paywall do you put a metered paywall like uh, most publications go with a metered paywall you run out after that so it doesn't affect the number of monthly unique visitors but affects the number of page views um and then also like how does that affect user experience so we're going to go and after much thought and deliberation uh we're going to go for a model that um mimics that of the guardian which is a voluntary Request. Appealing to the, the better nature of your most loyal readers. But you need to give them something more than I'm getting. Because if I'm going in there and I'm getting exactly the same content for nothing, because I'm a cheapskate uh, and a bad <laughs> citizen, um, why must they get the same product as me when they are paying essentially for me to look at that stuff for nothing? First of all, they're probably much better people than you are, Bruce. And, well, no, that's, I mean, 99.999% uh, of the yeah, people ever born are better yeah, people than me. And, uh, and probably less of a capitalist, uh, capitalistly inclined uh, person. So the first thing is we appeal to the good nature of people and mm. that the work and try and, you know, reiterate that the work that we do is important and that we want to keep it free for even those who can't afford to pay to be able to access it. But like journalists. <laughs> like, like journalists, <laughs> like uh, students, yeah. like people who, you know, the, the many people who are unemployed in this country. And have people been obliging? Have they have they stumped up some cash? Yeah, so in the last uh, month and a half, we've been more aggressive in the ask in terms of uh, how often we make that ask and on how many pages it appears. Uh, and there's been a, like, We've been overwhelmed by the response from people who've, who've actually been paying. Are people paying you a lump sum, a small donation, or people giving you a direct debit? It's both. It's okay. both. We are people are um, we're encouraging people to sign up on a on a recurring basis, but we've also had some people who've made some large contributions. Um, going forward, um, that is going to evolve into a more formalized membership plan. Mm-hmm. And that is where some of these other benefits come in in terms of you know exclusive content, invitation to events, uh, maybe uh, free tickets to our big gathering events. 15th, uh, 15th, we, we're running out of time. 15th of August, you're going to be introducing the Gupta emails whistleblowers. Yes, we're going to be doing uh, showing a pre-recorded interview. So you, the, the you're, stage- They're not going to come on stage and say, it was me. 
Yeah, no. <laughs> um, we, we're going to be doing an interview with the guys who got the hard drive and uh, guys, okay, guys, right? Gotcha. Yeah, yes, who I'm got the hard drive and uh, and and you know gave it to us and uh, and allowed us to do the work that we did last year with our friends at Amapungani and News Twenty Four. Um, so yeah, it, it, this event is about media issues. It's a focus on media. We had the first event last year, which was very successful, and these issues we're talking about now: membership, uh, driving revenue from readers, um, you know, asking readers to get involved, and just sharing some of the challenges. for liquidation today for both the TV channel and the newspaper, Huffington Post. Yeah, we, we talk about an existential crisis and. Uh, um, it's not. It, it, it really isn't hyperbole to talk about it in those terms. So this event is really about explaining that and sharing that information to the public. Stilly, stilly, I've done it again. Stilly Charalambus this evening, the publisher of the Daily Maverick. Thank you for coming in and giving us some insight this evening into the trials and tribulations of getting you and me uh, to pay for content online. Pump systems account for a staggering 10% of the world's electrical energy consumption. A shift to energy-efficient pumps can save 50% of that energy, and Grundfos is the global leader in innovative pump technology, and it's leading the charge in reducing our environmental impact and further mitigating our environmental deficit by harnessing power from off-the-grid and renewable systems. For sustainable pumping solutions in buildings, industries, and water utilities, choose Grundfos, change the world, visit scienceofgrundfoss.co.za Grundfoss, sustainably intelligent energy solutions. We care for people and our planet.